Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Merriam-Webster defines flounder in the following way. To struggle to move or obtain footing. Thrash about wildly. I am a grade A flounderer. I have spent a great deal of my life thrashing about wildly, not quite sure where I was going or what I was meant to be doing or who I wanted to be. To thrash about for the purpose of obtaining footing implies that there exists some elusive state of stability we simply haven't achieved yet. In my experience, the whole nature of floundering is that you're not quite sure what the state of sure footing is, you just know you haven't reached it yet. So you thrash about wildly, hoping to God that you are thrashing in the right direction, painfully aware that all your energy may be for naught. Which ties in nicely with the second definition of flounder. To proceed or act clumsily or ineffectually. Sound familiar? Am I the only one? Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this Aggressively Happy podcast series. We are working our way through the themes of my new book, Aggressively Happy, A Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life. And last week, we explored the theme of befriending sadness, what it looks like to make space for good grief in our lives, that we're not turning ourselves into stone or not allowing ourselves to feel the, the real vulnerability that comes with being a human. And this week we turn to one of my favorite chapters in the book, which is Flounder Well. And this is a chapter about what to do when you have no idea what to do, and when you have no idea where you're going. Later this week, I'm going to release an interview with George Corbett, who is a lecturer at St. Andrews University and who studies Dante. And I love the way that Dante opens his great masterpiece, The Divine Comedy. He says, midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a dark wood, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. But of the good which I found there, speak will I. And I love this because in my own life, I have found that it was often in seasons when the straight way was lost to me, when I didn't know which way was up, um, when I didn't know which step to take next, or when there wasn't a clear step to take. Those times when everything seems most mushy and insecure and unimportant, that my life was really taking shape. So this chapter is about what to do with seasons when you feel like you're floundering, when you feel like you don't know where to go or what to do. And to explore that theme, we will be looking at three kind of clumps of art. I say clumps because one of them I'm pairing a song with a poem. And these are vaguely based on the chapter in the book. Um, on kind of three things I say you should do when you're floundering well. But of course, you'll have to go get the book, um, which you can pre-order now, and I would encourage you to do, um, to actually get the, the book version. So this is just using art to kind of talk about some of the ideas in the book. Um, I will take this moment to say quickly that you should go order a copy of Aggressively Happy, uh, a copy or five. And um, the cheapest way to do that at the moment is to pre-order it through my publisher, so if you go to Baker Bookhouse, and I believe that's, I'm looking up on my computer at this moment, uh, it's bakerbookhouse.com, and then search Aggressively Happy, you can get it for 
basically $10, it's 40% off, and then they have free shipping if you're in the States. So that is a pretty good deal, so I would suggest that you go and pre-order there. So today, the three, I'm going to tell you the three kind of rules um, that I think of, three, three things to hang your hat on when you're floundering, and then the three works of art that we'll explore in relationship to that. So the first thing we'll talk about is listening to your life. And to do that, we're going to talk about the song Witness Trees by Henry Jameson, paired with Malcolm uh, Geit's beautiful poem, uh, The Singing Bowl, which I've actually talked about on the podcast before. And then in the second thing we'll talk about is becoming the most interesting person in the world. And for that, we will talk about Barbara Cooney's masterfully beautiful children's book, uh, Miss Rufius, or as I grew up calling it, The Lupin Lady. And then finally, we'll talk about trying not to be a total mess. So these are kind of your things to think about as you're floundering. Listen to your life, become the most interesting person in the world, and try not to be a total mess. And for Try Not To Be A Total Mess, we'll be watching, um, we'll be watching, I hope you'll be watching, go watch after listening to this, um, Sabrina, the 1995 version with Julia Ormond and um, Harrison Ford. It is one of my favorite movies. And I can't believe I haven't talked about it in the podcast, actually. So I'm really excited to dive into those with you all today. So without further ado, let's dive into the first thing to do when you find yourself floundering in life. And that is to listen to your life. But before we talk about that, let's begin by listening to a clip of the song Witness Trees by Mary Jameson. To be alone for a time, for a long time on a road. In a line, in a long line, witness my resentments, every petty little thought of mine. Where do you go, my darling, when you do not sing? Where do you go? And you've been told the you'll be drawn in by this beautiful um, song. Henry Jameson is a singer-songwriter that I really enjoy and have listened to over the last few years and even tried to get on my podcast several times. Um, he is a literary, occasionally esoteric, um, but really thoughtful writer. And I love, I love the way that his songs kind of wrap you up in an atmosphere. And I listened to this one a lot during the lockdown and I found kind of a solace in it um, for several reasons. These opening lines are, um, to me, so relatable for various periods in my life. So the opening lyric is, To be alone for a time, for a long time, on a road between contentments. And to me, this is kind of the essence of what many of my floundering seasons have felt like. You know, we all have times where we aren't as happy as we think we might be, um, or we are at a lull between jobs or when we feel abandoned during, you know, at the end of a relationship and we don't know if we'll ever get back into one. 
But there are these stretches of life um, that, that feel like more than just a moment. Um, you know, when he says to be alone for a time, for a long time, it's kind of like this clarification that this isn't just a short moment. It feels like I've been doing this for a while. And to be on a road between contentment. So you were content before and you think you probably will be again, but you're not sure. And, um, and to me, that was, um, that kind of captured some of the liminality that I experienced in, that we all experience when we kind of didn't know how things would turn out. And we still don't, um, globally with the lockdowns, but there are moments in our lives where we feel that way too, where there's this kind of having a time, a long time in which we don't know how things will turn out or where we'll end up. And, um, so to me, that's, that's what a floundering season is. It's a road between contentments. And then he has this lovely picture, which I actually learned. I, I realize I've been listening to it wrong. So he says, witness trees in a line, in a long line, witness my resentment, every petty little thought of mine. So I looked this up recently and, um, I'd always read this as a verb and I, I assume that he means it as a kind of a plan word. So it is in fact a verb. Um, but witness trees are actually a thing. Witness trees are um, significant trees in historical places that would have witnessed significant events. So in America, there have been some that have been noted to have seen the War of 1812 um, or significant battles or to have been in a place when kind of when a significant era passed by. And the idea behind them is kind of the just to be able to have contact with something which has witnessed something that seems so long ago to us, feels so foreign and, and distant. Um, and, and that is a wonderful thing about trees. And I think that actually kind of adds to this whole, to the feeling of the song, which is that when you look at a tree, um, trees seem very stationary, right? And a, a witness tree will have been there, um, in many ways, seemingly still for, you know, hundreds of years, um, not seeming to change, not seeming to get anywhere. And yet it has seen the progression of things and trees always are changing. And so the tree kind of becomes both this sense of the, the, the stuck in betweenness, but also of something that has seen change that has seen many people come and go. And he has this kind of feeling almost as though the trees are, um, are witnessing his resentments. And I think that these seasons of floundering can make us feel so kind of small and petty and, and like, we don't know which way to go. And then, um, and then there's this beautiful enigmatic little chorus where he says, where do you go, my darling, when you do not sing, where do you go? And I've been told the streaks of gold, you've been told the streaks of gold in your hair mean nothing. Oh no, not so. And to me, again, I think there's that sense of when you are floundering, you don't know which way to go. Um, life feels a bit like things don't mean anything. And like, you don't know if your choices uh, will mean anything. And it's hard to get on top of how do I know what choice means something? How do I know which way to go? How do I know the right person? How do I, how do my experiences have significance? And that comes alive in the second verse, which I'm not going to play for you, both for fair use policies and also because you should go listen to Henry Jameson on Spotify or wherever you find music. Um, but he says, to be afraid for a time, for a long time, that there's no angel watching. I see a sign in the breeze, in the wind, in the trees, in the skies over Austin. And I relate so strongly to this, 
that phrase, to be afraid that there's no angel watching. It's again, kind of that feeling of, is any of this mattering? Is there significance? Is there meaning? Am I reading it into the wind in the trees? It reminds me of um, one of my favorite poems by Sylvia Plath called The Black Rook and Rainy Weather. And she talks about kind of not, you know, she's kind of tired of praying. She doesn't expect anything from the desultory sky. But then she has this this wonderful moment where she sees a rook arranging its feathers and suddenly she sees this kind of shimmering of meaning and beauty and um and she feels like life really must mean something and the way she talks about it is you never know when there will be that rare and random descent of an angel so that that section reminds me of that that kind of when you've almost give, given up looking for or waiting for that rare and random descent so this captures to me that kind of feeling when you're going through wandering seasons of being on a road between contentments, not knowing how to find a new contentment, wondering if kind of having this sense of emptiness or of lostness that, that your, that your choices aren't meaning anything, that there's no angel watching. And I think for me, one of the great temptations in these seasons is to try to rush from one place to another, to try to find a way to convince myself that everything's okay, that there is significance. And um, I talk about this in the book, but I think if you think about floundering, that usually has to do with swimming. And, um, and for me, I, I've, I found that sometimes the more I flounder, the more lost I get. And that a part of what you need to do is to be like the witness trees. You need to stand still to wait and to see if in fact, the, the gold in your hair means something. Um, and that's, of course, the very thing we don't want to do, because when we're stuck in floundering seasons, when we're stuck on the long road between contentments, we don't want to be still, um, because it feels like death. It feels scary. Um, but there's this sense that if we do, perhaps we will start to see something, the wind in the trees um, will begin to see a sign again. Things will start to come back to life. And um, a good analogy for this is that they say that people are more likely to drown by moving a lot than if they just stopped and took a deep breath and and let themselves float. And I think that's a good kind of analogy for when we go through seasons of floundering. That perhaps the thing to do is is not to flounder, not to move around, but actually to stop and to breathe and to wait. Which is why I want to put this in conversation um, with the poem The Singing Bowl by Malcolm Guyte. And I'm going to read that to you now and just reflect on it a little bit together. So the singing bowl, just so you know what that is before I read you the poem, a singing bowl is, um, it's a, it's, it's a literal bowl, um, usually metal, very thin, and you run a, um, you run a little wooden dowel around it. Um, and, and then it makes, it begins to make a noise eventually as you continue to do that, it begins to sing. And it was used um, in the East mainly for meditation. It was a way to kind of help you focus on one thing. And Malcolm Geit, the priest, poet, um, rock and roller, uh, who has been on this podcast before, uses this as kind of a metaphor because when you do it, you kind of, when you run the, the wood around the, the edge of the bowl, you don't think it's, you kind of, when it be, suddenly begins to sing, it feels imperceptible. And to do that, you have to be really patient. You have to wait. You have to not try to rush it, try to get it to happen, because then it'll, it'll disturb the vibrations. So he writes this poem about, um, about singing bowls. 
and, um, and it makes it analogous to prayer and kind of finding ourselves in seasons when we don't know what our life means. So this is how the poem goes. Begin the song exactly where you are. Remain within the world of which you're made. Call nothing common in earth or air. Accept it all and let it be for good. Start with the very breath you breathe in now. This moment's pulse, this rhythm in your blood. And listen to it, ringing soft and low. Stay with the music. Words will come in time. Slow down your breathing. Keep it deep and slow. Become an open singing bowl whose chime is richness riding, rising out of emptiness and timelessness resounding into time. And when the heart is full of quietness, begin the song exactly where you are. I love this poem because it's a song, it's a poem that reminds me that there is beauty and meaning in our lives, even when we can't tell. Um, and that though we might all kind of carry that fear of, you know, of, of being on a road between contentments, of being afraid for a time, for a long time, there's no angel watching. Though that can drive us to want to kind of search and know and look around to find some kind of um, security, um, that, that's already there, uh, deep within us, that God is already working in our lives, that there's already goodness and resources present to us. And what we need to do sometimes is to stop, to listen closely to our lives. And that only in that, rather than kind of rushing around, can we begin to know where to move next and which road will lead us to contentment. And and that's just a phrase that I repeat to myself sometimes when I find myself in a road, road between contentments is begin the song exactly where you are. Um, so wherever you are, if you are on a road between contentments, take your advice from the trees, the witness trees who have seen many things pass by. Um, take your advice from the singing bowl and stop, listen. And as you do that, the meaning in your life, the direction you need to have, the resources you need to draw on will become apparent. Don't waste your energy trying to be somewhere other than where you are. So that to me is one of the first steps in floundering well, is listening to your life and, um, and breathing deep and not trying to rush to conclusions you can't reach yet. But there's kind of a flip side to that. And the way I think about this, and I've talked about this in another episode, is I think about it like the rules of improv comedy. In improv, you have one fundamental rule that goes um, for everything, which is yes and. So that means that when you do improv, you always have to say yes. You can't deny if you have a scene partner and they they come they say there's a blue purple there's a purple elephant running around the grocery store. You can't you can't say no. You have to accept the reality that you're given. But then the best part of improv is when you say yes to it and then you can respond with your and, which is you add to the scene. And I think that's kind of the two sides of floundering well. The first is you have to be listening to your life enough to be able to say yes, to not try to make it something other than what it is, to not try to rush beyond the season that you're in. But then you get to add to your life. And this is where you get um, the second thing we're going to talk about, which is how to become the most interesting person in the world. Now, I draw this from, uh, there was a great series of ads 
from um, Dos Equis, the beer company. And these ads were just unforgettable, such a, a work of art when it comes to advertising. They'd say things like this. At the museum, he's allowed to touch the art. He once parallel parked a train. On every continent in the world, there's a sandwich named after him. His hands feel like rich brown suede. He can speak French in Russian. He, his shirts never wrinkle. He once had an awkward moment just to see how it feels. He's the most interesting man in the world. So this is this, um, it's really, I mean, it's very silly, but there's this idea that we all want to be the most interesting person in the world. And to me, one of the greatest seasons, uh, one of the greatest gifts of seasons of floundering has been when you don't know exactly where to go, um, I would say turn your energy back to yourself. Um, and I don't mean that in a selfish way, but turn it back and say, well, if I don't know where I can go or what I'm supposed to be doing, how can I enrich my life? Um, you know, how can I think about that in many categories, right? So physically, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, um, socially, uh, if I don't know which way to go, then I'm just going to invest in becoming the most interesting version of myself that I can. And, and oddly in my life, usually it's from that, that I then discover what I should actually be doing and where I should actually be going. And I think that's because we have these kind of ideas of success or vocation that depend on kind of um, being productive, being um, being respected. Um, but those are all kind of external things that are missing the motivation that it takes to become those things. And I think what it takes to be really, to have a vocation is to discover that out of a place of, of delight and intention. And uh, to talk about this, I want to explore one of my very favorite books that I think marked me, it got deep into my bones, and I think has shaped how I saw the world. And that is Miss Rumphius by Barbara Cooney. Now, if you grew up reading this, you're going to have the immediate reaction of going, oh, Miss Rumphius. Because I think for a lot of us, this was a, a kind of classic text that got somewhere deep in our bones. Barbara Cooney was an illustrator from Maine, uh, a children's illustrator, so she's got all these beautiful books. Um, if you have children, you should 100% invest in Barbara Cooney. Um, some of her, the ones I remember, there's the Oxcart Man and Miss Rumphius. She's got a whole, whole bunch. Um, one of my favorites was Rocks of Oxen, which is about there's just always these very simple but very imaginative stories. Rocks of Boxen is about a little imaginary town that all these kids create. And I just remember it lighting up my imagination like nothing else. Um, but Miss Rumphius tells the story of, it begins by talking about a little girl who lives by the sea and she talks with her, I think it's her grandfather. And, um, and he tells her about how he's traveled all over the world and he's the most wonderful thing in the world. He makes wooden, um, like the mastheads for ships. And she sits in his lap and she says, when I get old, I want to be like you. I want to travel all over the world. I want to live by the sea. And, and he said, and that's where she stops. And he says, but you have one more thing you must do. You must make the world more beautiful. And she thinks to herself as a little girl, um, but the world already is beautiful. It is already really nice. How, what will I do? And the wonderful thing about this book is that um, it's not a narrative where there's a 
um, some, there's not like an arc, right? There's not a tension that needs to be resolved. The tension is how will she do these three things? How will she travel the world? How will she, um, live by the sea? And then more importantly, kind of this question of what, what would it mean for her to make the world more beautiful? And, and so the story goes on and you can get this as a, you should get this as a physical book. Um, but there's also several read aloud. So if you want to go watch, you can go watch somebody read the book aloud and you can see beautiful illustrations if you look it up on YouTube. Um, so the story goes on and she does in fact get to travel the world. Um, and then while she's traveling the world, she, uh, she gets to see many beautiful things, but then she hurts her back and she says, oh, what a silly thing to do. And so she goes back and she thinks, well, this is my opportunity then to live by the sea. So she gets a cottage by the sea, but she's, she's quite poorly. She's quite ill. And, um, and she kind of feels she is floundering. She feels like her life doesn't have any purpose or direction. And she sits in these beautiful illustrations. She starts to look older. She's looking out the window, saddened. And she just throws a handful of seeds out the window um, of the, this beautiful flower that she likes and wishes that she could go out and walk outside. And then when the summer comes and she's finally able to walk again, she goes out and she sees that the seeds she threw from her window have grown and that there's this whole kind of um, hillside that's full of these beautiful lupins, which are these very tall flowers that come in uh, purple and blue and pink. And so then she begins to have this little kind of secret um, conspiracy where she goes, everywhere she goes, she scatters lupins. And she comes to think that this is her way of making the world more beautiful. That everywhere she goes, she leaves behind seeds of these lupins and they and they bloom. And, and that's her way of making the world more beautiful. So that the book ends with her being very old and they're calling her the lupin lady. Because wherever she's gone, she has quite literally made the world more beautiful. And this did several things for me. The first was that it helped me think about what it meant to be an interesting person. And um, and I think something I talk about in the book is that I think sometimes we, we don't give God enough credit for the immense capacity of human beings to be interesting. You know, it says in scripture, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that reminds us of how multifaceted human beings are, that we are intellectual, um, that we are physical, that we can master things and master skills, that we are, that we are social, that we love, that we fall in love, that we make families and communities, um, and, and that we are spiritual. And I think that when I looked at um, Miss Rumphius, I, I saw a multifacetedness uh, to what it was to be a human. And I think that's what compels us on some level about the silly ad about, you know, um, about the most interesting man in the world is that we're reminded, oh, actually humans can be very interesting. We just often don't stretch all those muscles. And I think that's kind of a gift of floundering seasons is that it makes you go, well, if I, if you use them well, you can go, well, maybe I don't know where I'm going with my job or my career, but I can spend this, this season of my life becoming more interesting uh, becoming more fully developed. And I, that's what I kind of love about most Rymphius is there's a sense of not quite knowing where she's, she should go or um, what's going to happen. But she goes from thing to thing and as she goes, she discovers the deeper beauty and the, the greater joy of life. So Miss Rymphius showed me she was the most interesting woman in the world to me. She reminded me that there's much to being a human, that there's much to this good world we live in and that it, it matters to thank God for it, enjoy it and see his fingerprints in the beauty of it and the beauty of every different culture. Um, so I love that about Miss Rumphius. 
But she also showed me um, the idea of leaving the world more beautiful than you found it. And, um, and I think that is something that we should all take with us. And that maybe gives us a little bit of sense of purpose when we are in those floundering seasons. That's not about accomplishing something. It's not about, um, you know, uh, showing how spiritual you are. There's this sense of, from the pure love and delight of your heart, how can you leave the world more beautiful, more attended to, more loved than it was when you came? And, and I think that this is this beautiful metaphor of someone whose heart is bent on that, not just bent on accomplishing something or propping up their ego, but bent on, on being the person who enjoys and brings life to the world, that you could be like the Lupin lady who, who when she died had left this whole hillside of, of not whole hillside, the whole countryside of, uh, that behind you with, with beautiful flowers. And, and so when you're in floundering seasons, one of the things I like to think about is not, well, where should I go? What should I do? Or who should I marry? Or where should I go to school? But how am I uh, being interesting? And how am I leaving behind the world more beautiful than when I came? Now, one of the things that's interesting about this book also is that it was actually based on someone in real life. And that person was a woman from England named Hilda Edwards. And Hilda came um, in the early 1900s to live with her uncle, who was a professor at Smith. And, um, and so you see kind of these parallels between Hilda and Miss Rumpheus. And uh, unlike Miss Rumpheus, she got married. Um, and she also traveled um, and did work. But she, her, her kind of experience of breaking her back was, we don't know exactly what happened, but she, um, she left her husband in Paris on one of their travels and he never came back with her. And so she went to, um, she went back to America and she bought a, a, a cottage by the seaside after this big kind of loss. And that is where in real life she began to plant lupins. And people kind of credit her for in, in the spring in Maine, there are these fields and fields of bright pink and blue and purple. So that was actually based in a real person. And what's interesting is that people actually wouldn't have known it was her, was it not for like a very specific, I think a letter or something she left behind. And her son reported it. Um, and the thing that I love about this is that both in the, um, the story of Miss Rumpheus with her hurting her back, um, but also with Hilda, you have this kind of sense of a moment of total disruption when you don't know which way to go, um, when you feel like something is lost. And their, their inclination was to return to somewhere beautiful, listen to their life, to not try to rush and make things right. But then this kind of impulse to bring life back to chaos. And I, I love, and I talk about this in the, in the book, um, I don't talk about Miss Rumpheus, but the idea of, of cosmos and chaos. So when we think about the word cosmos, when we talk about the universe, um, cosmos is related to the word that we use for cosmetics or cosmopolitan. And what it means is to make something. It's, it's a world creating word. And Madeline Lingle has this wonderful thing where she talks about how an artist's role is to bring cosmos out of chaos. And that's what God does in the opening chapters of Genesis, to look into the darkness and to give it shape and form and beauty. And that's what I think that Miss Rumpheus does. She looks into the confusion and the darkness of her life, and she actively brings order and beauty to something that felt like chaos. 
And I think that's a great kind of way to think about how to approach seasons of floundering is how can I bring order and beauty, cosmos, out of this chaos? How can I leave the world and my own life more beautiful than when I came? So when you are experiencing a season of floundering, um, first stop and listen to your life. Um, trust that there is beauty and meaning amidst it and don't try to rush forward. Uh, let yourself witness trees and be witnessed by them. Um, then be the most interesting person in the world. Be like Miss Brumpheus, who goes out and leaves the world more beautiful than when she came and makes cosmos out of chaos and leaves behind a beautiful legacy. And finally, um, I'm going to talk about uh, one of my favorite movies, which is Sabrina, the 1995 version with Harrison Ford. And... Um, <clears throat> Oh, Julia Ormond. I couldn't think of her name. And I'm vaguely associating this with the last point of my chapter, which is try not to be a total mess, which I take from a Sufian Stevens Reddit post. Um, it was a prayer that he has to God. And he says, try not to be a total, uh, things I would like. And one of them is to try not to be a total mess. And I really enjoyed that. And I've, it's been helpful to me in floundering seasons because there is that sense of, I like that it's try. It's not don't be a total mess. It's try not to be a total mess. And then it's try not to be a total mess. So you can, you can be a mess, but try not to be a mess and try not to be a total mess. So it's like the bar is very low, but the bar is still inviting you to be a little bit taller. And, and so to explore this theme, we're going to talk about kind of, it's kind of loosely related. You should just go read the book if you want to figure it out. But I'm really just going to monologue about Sabrina because I love it. So Sabrina is... I think I'll call it a highbrow rom-com or maybe a fairy tale. So it tells the story of Sabrina, who is the daughter of a chauffeur for a very wealthy family in New York. And um, this very wealthy chauffeur spends all of his time reading and his wife has died. And so he takes care of Sabrina and she uh, grows up absolutely in love with one of the two sons in this wealthy family. Now, I love this movie partially because it's just all the glitz and glam um, of the 90s. And if you're like, was there glitz and glam in the 90s? Absolutely. And if you watch this show, you will enjoy it. So Sabrina falls helplessly in love with um, with this, the younger son, David Larrabee. And her father is concerned about how like that this is kind of taking over her life. So when she's 20, he finds an internship for her in Paris. And he sends her away, hoping that she'll fall out of love with Larry, with, um, with um, Linus, which is such an unromantic name, but she's absolutely in love with him. So, um, oh no, sorry, she's in love with David. Um, so then she goes off to Paris and, um, you know, at first she really misses him. And then she starts to kind of fall in love, fall in love with this French guy. And, and she's working for a fashion magazine and she's totally kind of not into it. And she's awkward and... But she begins to be mentored by this wonderful French woman. And, um, and at one point in the story, she's having coffee with a French woman who's just the absolute picture of elegance. And, um, and the French woman is sharing with her about a difficult period in her life when she felt lost. Because Sabrina feels lost, far away from home. Um, far away from David, who she's in love with in her mind. And the French woman says this. I sat in a cafe and wrote nonsense in a journal. Then suddenly, it was not nonsense. I went on long walks, and I met myself in Paris. You seem embarrassed by loneliness. 
but you see it is a good place to start. In this wonderful little kind of monologue, um, Sabrina begins to meet herself. Uh, in a way, loneliness is kind of like sadness. She befriends her loneliness. Um, she scribbles nonsense in a journal. She takes walks. She enjoys her internship. And she begins to kind of transform into this person who's more comfortable, more at ease, who knows herself. And it's not because she's decided anything, but she just kind of lived into this mysterious season. So she comes back uh, with a new haircut and a new sense of confidence and a new sense of self. And by coming back as this honest, open person who has kind of become less of a mess, she throws everyone else into absolute chaos. Um, so I'm ruining the plot points here, but it's been out for a long time. So, um, you know, David begins to fall in love with her and this is problematic for various reasons. Um, uh, Linus then tries to distract her. And basically, because of her own authenticity, because of finding herself, this brings out these kind of, um, the various ways in which the other characters have not been living into who they were made to be. So Linus begins to face up to the ways he's submerged himself in work. And David begins to accept responsibilities in ways that he never has, because he's kind of the the younger, you know, the, the prodigal son. And it's this beautiful picture to me of two things. One is the great gift of seasons of floundering. I think that the thing we feel when we're in seasons where we don't know which way is up is none of this is going anywhere. I don't know what I'm doing. It's not making a difference. But what I love about this beautiful little phrase that the French woman gives her is that you need to trust that the nonsense you're writing in your journal is not nonsense, that it will be brought to some fullness. It will mean more than you thought it meant. This season, you will be able to look back and see what it meant, but only if you kind of give yourself over to it. And and so I think it's this beautiful picture of, of kind of all the things we've been talking about, that she has to begin with loneliness, that she has to not try to push past her life or be somewhere else, um, but that she also becomes an interesting person. You know, she doesn't know where she's going, but she gets a haircut. She tries on new clothes. She reads new novels. She um, explores the vast depths of being a human being. And then that, that her act of giving herself over to the season of floundering, becoming a more full human being, catalyzes the people around her to also to become um, more fully human. And I think that's a beautiful illustration of the effects of one person choosing to listen to their life and not try to force things and just let them unfold. And in my own life, it's made me think, what would it, who would I affect positively if I chose to be gentle, to listen to my life, to let things unfold, to become an interesting person. And, and that actually maybe that's not indulgent, that becoming a fully kind of strong person and, and living into your life and, and not just living for accomplishments, but trying to figure out what's next uh, in, in a more kind of holistic way, that might actually really bless the people around you, it might awaken the desires of the people around you in ways that they needed them to be awakened. So to me, Sabrina is a picture of many people going through floundering seasons and that sometimes floundering leads us to more self-expression. You know, maybe for Linus, it means he needs to think less about work, but sometimes floundering also makes us realize that we're sturdier than we thought we were, that we're actually able to do good work and be responsible. And that's actually a part of being fulfilled in life. 
Um, but I think all of these come from kind of giving yourself over to whatever season you find yourself in and, um, and listening to your life and becoming an interesting person and, and not being afraid of, of writing nonsense in your journal until it's not nonsense. So this has been one of my more rambly podcasts. I have just talked about, honestly, some of my very most enjoyable and nourishing pieces of art that I really love. Um, but I would encourage you to go explore all of them and, and think about what it means. Uh, think about how they kind of give you ways to think about floundering well. Um, but I, yeah, I would, I would encourage you to go watch all these things. And, uh, if you're on the, uh, speaking with joy, Patreon discussion group, we'll be looking more in depth at all of these, these pieces of art and exploring some discussion questions together. So that's on Patreon if you want to check that out. Um, but for now I'm going to sign off and, um, and I look forward to you joining me next week or not next week, the end of this week, talking with George Corbett about, um, a great author who illustrates what it looks like to flounder well, um, and who can speak of the goodness that you find when you're wandering through the dark wood and you don't know which way is up. So um, I'm wishing you a lovely week. I would encourage you to um, to not to not try to be somewhere else, um, not try to be someone else, to listen to your life, to know that the the song will come in time, um, and and also to let yourself be an interesting person. If you don't know where to go, then think about who to be. Um, so thank you all for joining me on this Aggressively Happy podcast, and I'll catch you this later this week. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this week's Aggressively Happy episodes. Don't forget to tune in next week and to pre-order your copy of Aggressively Happy a Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life, which you can find wherever books are sold. Have a lovely week, and remember to rejoice though you have considered all the facts.